Okay, I want to talk for just a little bit about the journey. We're all on a journey. And so the name of this is The Beauty of the Journey. I read a story recently in Sports Illustrated that I thought was pretty uh, entertaining and amusing. The story was about Lionel Rodia. Lionel's a middle-aged man from Philadelphia who's a diehard sports fanatic. He's a big Phillies fan, big Eagles fan, big 76ers fan. So he's had a rough year. But he's a loyal fan. He loves his teams. And Lionel has mastered the art of working his way in. So he'll start up in the nosebleed section. That's where he purchases the ticket. But he's mastered the art of working his way closer and closer and closer. So he buys a ticket up in section 500 and something, but he ends up at the 50-yard line. Or he might be way out in the outfield, but before the end of the game, he's right behind home plate. Okay, to be honest, how many of you guys are pretty good at that? My dad is pretty good at this. He's here. He's really good at it. You know, so often when I was a young boy, my dad would say, follow me. We'd be at the Rockies game. I would follow him. We'd end up behind with great seats, but then we had to do the walk of shame. You know the walk of shame when somebody taps you on the shoulder? Excuse me, sir. And then you have to turn around and walk all the way back up in front of all those people. Yeah, thanks, Dad. Appreciate that. But Lionel, he, Lionel doesn't have to do the walk of shame. He's so good at this. His crowning achievement happened during the World Series, 2008 World Series, Game 5. He started in the outfield near the left field foul pole. And then, just like he always did, he started looking for better seats. And he started working his way closer and closer. Well, he ended up two rows behind home plate in the diamond club section. And as the, the game was going on, it became clear that the Phillies were going to win and they were going to clinch the World Series championship. So he wasn't content just watching. He wanted to be on the field. True story, right from Rick Riley. Rick Riley never lies or makes anything up, does he, from Sports Illustrated. So Lionel starts to plot of how he can get onto the field. And so when the timing was right, he followed these important looking guys into the back, this back room, and it was chaotic. Everybody was excited. And he was in this back room with Bud Selig and the World Series trophy. And because of, it was just a big moment, everybody was getting ready. They didn't pay attention to old Lionel, who was just pretending like he belonged. And so Bud Selig and these guys carry the World Series trophy onto the field. And guess who goes with them? Lionel, the guy who started in the outfield. He's on the field with these guys. And everybody just assumes he's part of the, somebody affiliated with the organization. They put a, a t-shirt on him. They put a lay around his neck. He's high-fiving players. And then the celebration transitions from the, the field to the locker room, the champagne-stocked locker room. And Lionel's like, well, I'm going. And he followed the players into the locker room. He head-butted one guy. He gave Jamie Moyer, the pitcher, he gave him a kiss on the cheek. And he flew under the radar the entire time, except for when his buddy saw him on TV and said, is that, is that Lionel? Is that him? Is that Lionel Rody in the locker room? What on earth? How did he get in there? That's the picture of him. He's got the champagne. 
It's the man who started in the nosebleed section but ended up in the locker room, headbutting his heroes, kissing them on the cheek and dumping champagne over their head. And I read this story and I was laughing and I thought it was entertaining, but it, it also resonated with me at a, a little bit deeper level. I think the reason why is because every man I've ever met, including myself, we have this longing to not spend our entire lives as spectators in the stands. We have this longing to be in on the action. We want to participate. We don't want to spend, as men, we don't want to spend our entire lives watching our heroes or watching other people take risks and step out and pursue greatness and do things. Yeah, that's okay for a time, but eventually we want to step into the game. We want to put down the peanuts and leave the comfortable bleachers behind and say, here I am. I want to be in the story. And the beautiful thing about this is this is how God, this is God's design for us as men. This is how he's created us. This is how he's formed us. He made us in his image. He gave each one of us unique talents and gifts and abilities. And then he filled us with his Holy Spirit. And then he calls us into the action and says, you have a role to play in my story. You were never designed to be a spectator your entire life. You are called into the action. Isn't that good news? And then for us, we have to choose, okay, are we going to respond to his invitation? Knowing that we, as Christ followers, are called into the action, into the story, we have to decide, okay, well, how closely am I going to follow Christ? What if when he invites us into the story, what if that's so scary and what if that seems so risky? And uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of a tug of war because part of us longs for that. We know that's how God has wired us, but the other part of us kind of likes the, the safety of the bleachers. It might get boring after a while, but it's safe and it's comfortable. But there's something deep in us that, that speaks to us that says you were not created to be a fan. You were not created to be a spectator and simply watch. Now, yes, there is a time for being a spectator and learning and watching. And when we look at the disciples, it was clear. They were, there was a season where they were watching Jesus and they were learning from Jesus. They were watching the master. But then there came the day when Jesus said, go. Now I'm sending you. You're no longer a spectator. Now you can put down the Cracker Jacks. You can make your way to the field and this is going to be an adventure. When we look at the scriptures, we see on multiple occasions, Jesus would lead the disciples into uncertain situations. One example of this is found in Matthew chapter 14. This is a great story in the Gospels. And just to provide a little bit of context, Jesus had just multiplied the food and fed thousands of people. And right after he did the miracle and fed thousands of people, this is where the story picks up in verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. And I want to pause right here because whose idea was it 
for the disciples to get into the boat and cross the lake. Jesus's idea, just right there in the first sentence, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go to the other side. Now, when the disciples were being obedient to Jesus, they found themselves in the middle of a storm. They found themselves in a frightening, scary situation. The wind was strong and the waves were high. I picture a group of grown men hanging on for anything they can grab in this rickety little fishing boat. And I imagine they're looking at one another and saying, did Jesus really send us out here? Because I think this was a bad idea. They were following Jesus and they found themselves in the middle of the storm. And I bet some of them questioned whether Jesus told them to do the right thing. Oh, but some of them wondered, wow, is this, is, is this how it's going to end? By being obedient to Jesus, we're sinking. Have you ever felt like that? Maybe some of you feel like that right now, where you look around your life and you say, wow, I'm in the middle of a storm, and how did I get here? Jesus, I, I thought this is what you told me to do. I thought you called me to step out. I thought you were telling me to do this, and I did it, and Jesus, I am sinking. Where are you? Well, the good news is, is if you feel like that, that's exactly the kind of situation that Jesus likes to reveal himself in. He loves to show up in those situations when the storm is raging and the wind is strong and the waves are high and we're sitting here saying, Jesus, I thought this is what you told me to do. He loves to reveal himself right in that place. He loves it when the deck is stacked and we're looking around saying, I don't know how this is going to end. And then he reveals himself. That's exactly what he did in this story in Matthew 14. Jesus shows up, verse 25, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Now, this is exactly what Jesus tells us when we find ourselves in these situations, when we feel like we're sinking. And he shows up and he says, I'm with you. It's me. It's me, Jesus. I'm with you. Take courage. Don't be afraid. Now, Peter responded, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. What a, what a fascinating story this is that's unfolding in the middle of this lake. Because you have these men in a small fishing boat in the middle of a storm. Jesus shows up to them. And then you have, now these are courageous men. These are men who are willing to step out. They would not have been in that boat if they weren't willing to step out. They left so much to follow Jesus, which led them to that point. And by following Jesus, here they are in this situation, but they're all about to become spectators except one. Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you. See, there are different layers, different levels being willing to step out towards Jesus. And in this scene, Jesus steps out while the rest watch. Peter steps out, then he got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. Verse 30, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, 
cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? I just picture Jesus smiling. Jesus ushers him back to the boat. Jesus is fascinating. He's amazing. And the same Jesus that showed up in that situation on the water, that's the exact same Jesus that walks with you. He's the exact same Jesus that's with me. And I find it interesting that when Peter stepped out of the boat, it was Peter who became distracted. It wasn't Jesus. Peter saw the wind and the waves. And how easy is it for us to do that? When we step out in faith, when we take a risk, how easy is it to say, whoa, this is not good. How am I going to pay for this? Or there's a lot of different things we can say when we look around in life and we see the storm. But it was Peter who took his eyes off Jesus. It wasn't Jesus who took his eyes off Peter. And that is a big deal. We have to catch that, men. Because if we understand that in life, when we follow Christ, when we step out, when Jesus looks us square in the eye, which he does to every single one of us, and he says, come, and we step out and we respond to him, he will not take his eyes off of you. He won't. It's impossible. His eyes are fixed on you. And the reason that's important is because if we believe that, if we renew our minds and if we hold on to this, then it will be a catalyst for us to step out and encourage. The story didn't read Peter displaying great courage and faith, stepped out of the boat, but Jesus was distracted because he had so much going on and Peter sank to his death and died. He, he sank the end. I'm glad the story doesn't read like that. Jesus had his eyes on Peter and he refused to move his eyes off of Peter. And right now in this, this, in this season of your life, it's the same. He's got his eyes fixed on you and he refuses to take his eyes off of you. This has been a meaningful passage of scripture for me personally, just because of the journey I've been on over the past uh, really 18 months God has called me to step out of the boat and into this journey that has been very risky. It has felt uh, quite mysterious. But Jesus just kept saying, come, come. I think there's a storm going on out there. And so the story really started three years ago where I got a phone call. And the phone call was from my brother, my brother uh, is the is great man. He is adventurous. He has always been in shape. He is in just top physical shape. He always has been. And so he called me three years ago and he said, Gabe, I have decided that next year I'm going to sign up for the Leadville 100. And he went on to explain to me what the Leadville 100 is. It's a 100-mile race, not a motorcycle race, not a bicycle race, not a relay. It's a hundred mile running race. One person where they run 30 consecutive hours and they have to cover a hundred miles at altitude. It's in Leadville, which is the second highest city in North America. And so my brother was telling me what he was planning on doing. And I was like, wow, you are absolutely certifiably nuts. You're crazy. And so... He wasn't just calling to tell me that he was 
signing up for the Leadville 100, but he was actually calling to ask if I would be one of his pacers, which meant he wanted me to run 25 miles with him at above 10,000 feet, a guy who did not enjoy running. And so I'm thinking, wow, you are just absolutely out of your mind. But what I actually said is, okay, sure, count me in. I didn't know what I was signing up for, but I just knew at least I'm not running 100 miles. Here's a quote from Christopher McDougall from the book Born to Run. It's a great book, a great book on running. And here's how Christopher McDougall describes the Leadville 100. I did not know this before I said yes to being a pacer. Try running the Boston Marathon two times in a row with a sock stuffed in your mouth and then hike to the top of Pike's Peak. Done? Great. Now do it all again, this time with your eyes closed. That's pretty much what the Leadville Trail 100 boils down to. Nearly four full marathons, half of them in the dark with twin 2,600-foot uh, climbs smack in the middle. Leadville's starting line is twice as high as the altitude where planes pressurize their cabins. And from there, you only go up. Now, this is an elevation profile for the Leadville 100. The twin 2,600-foot climbs that he's talking about, that's Batman right here in the middle. You see that? So this is mile 50. So you start in Leadville, all this climbing and descending. Whoop. Mile 50, then if you make it there by a certain time, you have the, the joy and the privilege of turning around and doing it all again. So again, 25 miles for me, I thought, okay, I'm not, I'm not in shape to do 25 miles, but at least I'm not doing 100. I'll do it. So he had to find another pacer, somebody, another sucker, who was willing to do 25 miles, and he knew exactly who he wanted. His name was Billy Gable. Scott and Billy had been best friends from the time they could waddle around the neighborhood in diapers. They grew up together. And uh, the f in fact, the year my brother won his second state wrestling championship, that same year, Billy won his fourth state wrestling championship. He was a stud. He ended up in Sports Illustrated. Um, but that was back in the day. Way back in the day. 20 years ago. Now Billy Gable would be the first to tell you that he is not a machine. I don't think he would even say he's a stud. And those six-pack abs that he once sported and that I once had a long time ago were long gone. And he disliked running a little bit more than I did. But because he loved Scott and because he cared about Scott, he said, sure, sign me up. So we started training, Billy and I, for our 25 miles. And on one particular training run, he pauses and he, he's just, his face is purple. I mean, I think we had gone like two miles. <laughs> his face is purple and I'm not in much better shape. And he's, he's bent over like this and he goes, Gabe, I don't get it. Scott signs up to run 100 miles and he chooses Humpty and Dumpty as his pacers. <laughs> I'm thinking, <laughs> I don't know if he was calling me Humpty or Dumpty, but I couldn't really argue. Neither one of us had any business running a marathon at extreme altitude. So here's a picture of the terrain going up Hope Pass. It's well above tree line. There's a reason trees don't live up there. It's, it's pretty serious terrain. So Billy and I trained, Scott trained even more. The weekend of the Leadville 100, again, three years ago, came around. And Billy and I were under-trained, but we showed up. We were ready. 
Billy was stationed at mile 50, and I was stationed at mile 60. And so we were just going to take turns running about every 10 or 15 miles with him to try to just get him to the finish line. So Scott starts the race. He's doing great at mile 40. He goes over Hope Pass. He barely gets to mile 50 in time. If you, if you arrive at Winfield past 6 p.m., they pull you off the course. And so he pops out of the trailhead at mile 50 at 5.59. And he is sprinting as his legs were shot. But here he is sprinting and he gets in to the checkpoint in time. And then again, he can turn around and go back. But this time he had Billy with him. And Billy, just like a, a skilled jockey, was just encouraging Scott to say, come on, come on faster. And he got him up the backside of Hope Pass, which is what this is a picture of. And they get to the top. And Billy's like, wow, I feel pretty good. And Scott sits down on a rock just to rest. He's exhausted. And Billy looks at him. It's getting dark. It's getting cold. And Scott's eyes roll back in his head and he passes out on top of the mountain. And Billy looks at him and fear immediately grabs Billy. He doesn't know what to do. It's just Billy and Scott on top of this mountain. It's getting dark. So Billy takes Scott, loads him up on his back. The jockey becomes the horse and he carries him part of the way down to the next aid station, an aid station that was still high up on the mountain. And at that aid station, this medical team gave him attention and put him on oxygen and resupplied his nutrition. And eventually over time, he comes back to it. But by this time, his race is way over. He's way behind time and he, there's no way he was gonna finish it. So the next task was just to get him off the mountain alive and they talked about different strategies. Uh, they couldn't take an ATV up there because it was too, the terrain was too steep. And so search and rescue personnel, along with some medical personnel, usher him off the mountain and it takes several hours. Meanwhile, I'm at the bottom of this mountain, along with my dad and some other family members. And we just spent the whole night staring up at this mountain. It was one of the worst nights of my life. It still hits me just because I didn't know, wow, what happened to him up there? Is he going to be okay? He made it off the mountain at 6 a.m. the next day at mile 60. But again, he, his race was, was way over. He was okay. Billy and I got in the vehicle, drove away from Leadville, and we looked at each other as if to say, I never want to see this place again. I was right. These people are crazy. But I also knew my brother well enough to know that he was going to call me again and he was going to ask me to be a pacer again. So I was mentally preparing for that phone call. And sure enough, a couple months later, ring, ring. Gabe, it's Scott. I'm going to sign up for the Leadville 100 again next year. Okay, you need counseling. <laughs> but again, the words that actually left my mouth were, sign me up, I'll be a pacer. And so that second year, I took the training process to be a pacer, again, 25 miles, much more serious. 
And a strange thing started to happen as I was running and training. I actually found myself enjoying running. And I thought, whoa, this is interesting. For the first time in my life, I looked forward to getting out on the trail and running. And as the months went by, it just was growing and growing and growing. And then I started to notice something even more bizarre happening in my heart. I thought, what if I tried the Leadville 100 myself? Yeah, you're laughing because I thought that would be my wife's reaction too when I told her, which I'll get to in just a second. And so I started praying about this, like, what is this desire? You know, the scripture says in Proverbs 21 that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course in whichever direction pleases him. That's our Lord. That's our God. He does this to every one of our hearts. He takes our hearts and he turns our hearts in certain directions. And we have to pay attention. If we have a desire that won't go away and we keep praying about it and praying about it and seeking the Lord's will and it's getting stronger, the Lord is trying to tell us something in that oftentimes. That's what was happening. This desire kept getting stronger. It would not go away. I kept praying about it. That second year came and went for my brother and he gave it a valiant effort. He made it to mile 60. He missed the checkpoint. He didn't pass out, which was a huge victory, but he, he was pulled off the course again. And this desire in my own heart to try this was just, that fire was fanned into flame. It was stoked. And so then I said, okay, I got to get really serious about praying about this. And so I said, Lord, what is this about? Why have I had this desire for months? Why isn't this going away? God, I think you have the wrong man here for this. Lord, don't you remember? I'm not a runner. I'm a bow-legged wrestler. And surely you're not leading me into this. I just, could, I just sensed the Lord smiling. One day in prayer, I just asked him, point blank. I said, Lord, is this you? Are you in this? Are you inviting me into this journey? And he responded. And his response was quite interesting. Here's what he said. He said, I want to take this journey with you. And I'm thinking, God, are you sure you have the right man? God, I can introduce you to some runners who are pretty good at this. And this is, just, this is what he said again. I want to take this journey with you. And I kept praying about this over the next several days. And the Lord continued to speak through the Holy Spirit to my heart. And one of the things the Lord said was, Gabe, I like it when men step into a bigger story. I like it when a man is willing to step into a story where they can't control the outcome. They can't control it. They just have to step out and trust that I'll meet them there. And I was like, God, okay. If, if, if this is of you, I'll do it. I'll, try, I'll sign up. But God, you know, just like Peter, before he stepped out of the boat, Lord, if it's really you, I said, God, if it's really you, my wife has to be on board. Dun, dun, dun. Now, I was afraid that my wife was going to laugh me right out of the room. I had not given her any confidence that I had the, the dogged determination to run for 30 consecutive hours 
This is the same woman who watched me on multiple occasions go out for a run and then come back 10 minutes later. And she's like, huh? Like, oh, I didn't feel like running. So I had not given her confidence that I had what it took to do this. And so I kind of sheepishly approached her one day and I said, Ashley, I have an idea. I've been thinking about trying the Leadville 100. What do you think? And I was waiting for her to take this idea and absolutely body slam it to the ground with a resounding no way and then laugh, 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 laugh. She did smile. And then she gave me this charming expression. And she said, I'll bet you could do it. Now that is a powerful thing for a woman to say to a man. I'll bet you could do it. The Lord had touched her heart and supernaturally turned her heart towards that. There's no way, if God wasn't involved, there's no way she would have said yes to that. The time, the money, she had a long list. Of, she, A to Z in terms of reasons why, then back to A and back to Z. But she said yes. Let's do this, to, let's, let's do this together. I want to support you. So she was on board and I said, okay. And I picked up my training intensity and I got even more serious about it. And I, I was talking to different wise men and mentors and asking their opinion. And all of the arrows were pointing towards yes. Now I took my time before I absolutely committed to it because I wanted, I wanted to know what my motive was in this. I wanted to make sure that my motive was in the right place. You know, there's a great quote that I heard from some of the guys from Ransomed Heart. And the quote is, every man wants to be a matador until the 2000 pound bull starts bearing down on him. And then what that man discovers is what he really wanted was just to wear tight pants and hear the crowd roar. I mean, that's pretty much what he wanted. And so I'm aware of this and I'm aware of my motives. I'm like, God, show me my motives. Illuminate my motives by the Holy Spirit. I wanna make sure I'm in the right place on this. And again, he just kept saying, yes, yes, yes. And so I kept training. And over the next several months, so much of my time was spent in the mountains running with God. And it was absolutely beautiful. But there was this tension, there was this tug of war that I experienced in those months. And the tug of war was, I had this tendency to try to run ahead of God. And I'm, I usually don't run ahead of anybody when it comes to running, but metaphorically run ahead of God. And he kept bringing me back. And I was, I was trying to do this in my own strength and do this in my own power and plan and do all of this. And God, would, God continued to bring me back to his initial invitation. And the initial invitation was, I want to take this journey with you. Can anybody relate where you try, when God calls you into something, it's easy to try to run ahead of him and take control and, and initially take that journey without him? And the Lord kept saying, Gabe, be true to the story. This isn't a story about you and your own strength stepping out and trying to be a superman. That's not the story I'm telling. Gabe, the story I'm telling is an unlikely man stepping in out of the boat and into a story where he has to trust that I'll be with him. That's the story I'm telling. 
And Gabe, I want to enjoy this journey with you. That was the point of it. And we have to, no matter what journey you're on, we have to understand that because that's what he says to us. Yeah, you can run ahead of me. Yeah, you can try to do it in your own strength. Yeah, you can do it in your own power. You can try, but that's not the story I'm writing for you. I want to take the journey with you. That's what he's telling you. I want to walk with you. I want to develop intimacy with you. I want to develop deep friendship along the way. That's the heart of the Father towards you. That's his heart towards me. No matter where we're headed, no matter what the outcome is that we want to see, he wants to see the friendship along the way. He wants us to be disciplined, to resist that urge, to run ahead and try to do it in our own strength. And he said, walk with me. Enjoy this. Gabe, this is a beautiful journey. Why are you trying to do it in your own strength? And there were so many moments along the way as I walked with him, as I paid attention to him, that he would lead me into these glorious moments this is early one morning. We were hiking Pikes Peak. Dave Johnson, who's right over here, was brave enough to hike Pikes Peak with me up and down. And right at the beginning, we get up above the clouds. And this was my view. And in this moment, I was so aware of the presence of God. And the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart in this moment as I'm looking out on the horizon. And he said, I'm so glad you said yes. I'm so glad you said yes. Because if I wouldn't have said yes, I would have been snoring. I would have been in my bed. I would have been sleeping. I would have absolutely missed that moment with the Heavenly Father as he was speaking and ministering into my heart. I would have missed it if I wouldn't have said yes to the initial invitation. And it's, it's true for every one of you. When he beckons you, when he calls you out of the boat, when he calls you into a story, if you, if you don't say yes, what are you missing out on? Yeah, there's a 2,000 pound bull in that story. There's a 2,000 pound bull in about every story. But what will we miss along the way if we refuse to step out. The next several months, again, I continued to train. I continued to have this just amazing time with the Lord and with friends and brothers who were committed to helping me. I had pacers and comrades and allies, brothers in Christ who would run with me and help train me and, and prepare me. And so it was such a rich summer leading up to August. So this last August, a couple uh, months ago, is when the race was. The weekend of August 22nd finally arrived. I drive up to Leadville, and that night, I'm so incredibly nervous. Barely able to sleep. And I wake up on August 22nd at about 1.30 in the morning, force myself to eat, and I show up in downtown Leadville at 3 a.m. at the starting line. Over the next 20 minutes, six or 700 other crazy people showed up at the start line with their running shoes on. And the final countdown happened, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 3, 2, 1. They fired a shotgun, and with that, I was off. 
like a herd of turtles, baby. We were off. We were running. And the first mile was festive, and there were spectators lining each side of the street. And it was, of course, it was dark being 4 a.m. Everybody had their headlamps on. But by mile two, it was quiet. The spectators were gone. We were just outside of Leadville on this dirt road. All you could really hear was the sound of running shoes on this dirt road. All I could see was a long line of headlamps in front and the headlamps behind. In the first six miles, I was so aware of the presence of God again. Just his presence. Just a heavenly father smiling at his son. Proud of me. I hadn't even really gotten into the race. And he was just saying, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. I'm with you. He, he kept saying that I'm with you. I'm with you. So by mile seven, we come around the corner and we're now running around Turquoise Lake, which is just the spectacular lake near Leadville. It was dark, but by 6 a.m. the sun started to rise and it exposed the beauty of the course for the first time. This is actually a picture my wife took the morning of. So I'm down there. She's driving uh, in this vehicle. Uh, I envied her in this moment. I'm uh, running around the lake, and that was the, the sunrise that was coming up. So I arrive at the first aid station, mile 13.5, ahead of my goal time. I'm feeling great. Ashley and Laura, who was also on my crew, restocked my supplies. I got back on the trail, and I started the first real climb of the course. And so right here, I'll step down so you can see it. So this first part is around Turquoise Lake, and this is the first aid station. So from here, it's a 1,300-foot climb to the top of Sugarloaf Pass. And so I've got a good pace going. I'm feeling great. I get to the top of Sugarloaf Pass. I'm still ahead of my goal time. And then I start this descent, a steep descent down the face of the mountain called Power Line. The trail essentially follows these power lines straight down the mountain. And it's steep and it's rugged and it's gnarly. But I was running fast and still feeling really, really strong. But about three quarters of the way down right here, I feel this sharp pain in my knee. It feels like somebody stabbed me in the knee out of the blue. And I came up out of my running posture and I shuffled to a stop. And the first thought that went through my head was, probably can't share that, but that wouldn't be appropriate. But I knew something is wrong. Something is terribly wrong here. So I tried to run again and it was painful. I had this little waddle thing going, but I was almost to the bottom of the mountain. And so I worked my way to the bottom of the mountain. And then when I got back on the flat area right here, I noticed that the pounding wasn't nearly as bad. And so the pain started to subside and I could run again, which was encouraging. And so I had a good pace and I came into mile 25 ahead of my goal time. And then mile 32, I was ahead of my goal time. I could feel the pain, but the pounding wasn't as bad. And so this whole stretch going back up, I felt pretty good because I'm going up. And again, the, the knee wasn't experiencing the pounding as it did when I went downhill. But when I got to the top right up here, about mile 36, 37, I started to encounter some downhill sections. In fact, this is very steep. It's about a 1,300 foot drop down to mile 40, which is Twin Lakes. And very early on, as I started to descend, I knew I was in serious trouble 
because the pain was getting worse. My knee was swollen and I had to keep getting off the trail to let other people go by. And so my pace slowed way down. I couldn't run. I tried running several times, but I just literally could not do it. And so I arrived finally in Twin Lakes right here at the bottom, about 30 minutes behind my, my goal. So discouragement's coming in. Fear is coming in. I, I th- really believed I was going to finish. But at this point, I realized uh, I, I don't know how this is possible. I'm going to show a video. This is me at mile 40. As soon as I got into Twin Lakes at mile 40, I was really essentially ushered into a heavenly experience, which meant I just sat down in a chair. And this is my crew taking good care of me. This is, they're taking off my shoes. My wife is on the left. You can't really see her. That's Pastor Matthew Ayers. He's one of the pacers. Bobby Nicholas was a pacer. Travis Hearn is in the back. He's a pacer. But I want to show you this because this is what a fire team is about. These three guys, and among others, they really surrounded me on this journey. They had my back. They prayed for me and prayed for me and prayed for me. And when I got to mile 40, this is Matthew Ayers taking off my staunchy shoes and socks and rubbing Vaseline on my feet to protect my feet from blisters. What a picture of fire teams. What a picture of men coming around another man to say, I've got your back. You were never meant to do this alone. And that's exactly what he did. That's exactly what my crew did. And when I watch this video, it makes me ask a couple of questions. Number one is, who am I doing that for? Whose back do I have like Matthew Ayers had my back? Am I that kind of man? who would get down and rub somebody's stinky feet just because I'm his brother in Christ. We all need those people in our lives. And we need to be those people for others. It was just a beautiful picture of my team. I was very, very thankful for. So I left mile 40 And I went across the field and I crossed through a river and I started the 3,400 foot climb to the top of Hope Pass. I was quite a bit behind my goal time. I was dangerously close from being pulled from the course because uh, I was at this point not moving very well. And I worked my way to the top, which is 12,600 feet. And the view was absolutely spectacular. This is a picture near the top of Hope Pass with the mountains in the background. And I took in this view and I was looking out on the mountains, but I started to notice my eyes were getting uh, fuzzy. My vision was going fuzzy. And I, this was the worst thing that probably could have been happening at this Well, there's probably a lot of worse things that could have happened, but this was not good. And I knew what was happening because it had happened a couple different times on training runs. When my blood sugar went too low, my eyes started to get spotty and my vision started to go. And so I'm thinking, oh no, you gotta be kidding me. This is the worst possible time for this. I'm on top of this mountain and I still have to get off this mountain. 
And so I suck down a couple gel shots. I'm thinking my, my blood sugar levels will respond, and they're not responding to anything. Meanwhile, I'm going back down the backside of Hope Pass. I try to run because in order to hit the checkpoint time, I, I've got about 90 minutes to go five and a half miles, and it's steep and it's rocky. And in my training runs, I could do it in 90 minutes. And so I still had a little bit of hope left. And I start trying to run down the mountain, but within about 100 yards, I knew there's absolutely no way. I was able to run. In fact, I could barely even put any pressure on my right knee, and I ended up using my trekking poles as a form of crutches to just move forward. Meanwhile, my eyes are getting worse and worse and worse. And after about 45 minutes, I'm starting to get really concerned because I've never had this issue last more than about 15 or 20 minutes. It always went away. Now, the aftershock was always brutal. I felt nauseous. I just felt like my system had absolutely crashed. So I knew that was coming, but I just wanted my, eye, my vision to come back. After about an hour and a half, my vision still hadn't come back. In fact, it was getting worse. And this is the point where I could not run. I was limping along. I knew my race was over because... I was not going to get to mile 50 by 6 p.m. And so I started thinking, God, Lord, this is not how I saw the story ending. God, I, you invited me into this. What is going on here? And I was afraid. Looking back, it, this might seem a bit dramatic, but when I was up on that mountain trying to get, my, get off the mountain, I was like, God, I just want to see my family again, please. I don't want to die here. Again, a bit dramatic, but at the time, I was, I'll just admit, I was scared. You know, going back to the quote about the matador, every man wants to be a matador until the bull. You know, I thought about my motives, and when I think about a matador, when I, when I think about the Leadville 100 when I thought about it before, this is kind of the picture I had in my mind. Like, yeah, this is going to be good. Yeah, it's going to be hard. I'm going to be in pain, but this is going to be good. I've got this. I'm going to be the matador who, who does this. But in reality, when I was on top of that mountain, this is what was really going on. <laughs> that 2,000-pound bull had flipped me upside down and I'm like, oh, Lord Jesus, don't let me die. And again, I just felt his consistent, faithful presence. And it took me a long time. It took me a couple hours to get off the mountain. I finally get off the mountain. I'm taken, I'm greeted by my dad and taken to the medical team. And they evaluate me. And a decision is made to take me to the hospital. And so I'm in the ER you talk about a story ending about as opposite as you could imagine it ending. I imagine crossing this finish line, being triumphant. And after running 49 miles, I'm laying in an ER on oxygen. They're giving me antibiotics and doing all kinds of x-rays and tests and all kinds of things. And I was disappointed. I was deeply disappointed. And was eventually released. And over the next several weeks, I just 
started processing with the Lord. God, what, what was that about? I mean, it was a glorious journey and it was a crash landing. It was a brutal crash landing. And I started asking the Lord about it. And he reminded me that in all of our conversations about the Leadville 100, he never promised I would finish. He never did. He only promised that he would be with me. And I thought about that. It's so true for each of us. He doesn't guarantee success when he calls us into something. Failure is part of life for all of us. One night in particular, this was about a, a month after the Leadville 100. I was having a hard time sleeping at night. It was probably 10.30. And I just felt like, now this doesn't happen all the time. I'm not like this guy who, uh, this super pastor guy who, I, this just happened. It was kind of rare, actually. Usually I'm snoring at 10.30 at night. But I felt like the Lord wanted to spend some time with me. I felt like he was prompting me to, to, to get up and go downstairs and really process this journey with him again about a month afterwards and so I did I went downstairs and I, I just started I put on some worship music and I was just asking Lord what give me some under, more understanding of what that was all about and he asked me a very peculiar question it caught me off guard he said Gabe what do you think it was like for me to take that journey with you again it caught me off guard I really hadn't thought of it I was just thinking about it from my perspective, processing my own disappointment. And he went on to say, that was such a joyful journey for me, to spend that time with you, to have that experience with you as my son. I was so proud of you. I was like, God, really? You're proud of me when it, when it ends like that? Absolutely. This is the kind of Heavenly Father we have. We're all going to fail. If we step into the arena, that 2,000-pound bull will come after us. Sometimes it will go really, really well. Sometimes we'll be flipped out upside down and on the verge of being gored. But the reality is He is there, and He shows up in all of those situations. And He started to teach me about more and more of who he is as a heavenly father and what he was after. And I started thinking about how he shaped me and formed me along the way. And I just responded by saying, God, thank you. Thank you. It started as disappointment, but, but it ended in thank you, God. Thank you for inviting me to step out of the boat and into this mysterious journey where you met me and you walked with me every step of the way. Thank you, Jesus, for being faithful. It was a story that's very similar for all of our story. Your story may not include running 100 miles. Mine didn't either. <laughs> Only made it 49. But here's the thing about your story. It's the same Heavenly Father. It's the same love doesn't love me an ounce more than he loves you. He is not interested in speaking to me any more than he's interested in speaking to you. He hasn't given me any gifts and talents 
that's any better than he's given you. He hasn't given me a Holy Spirit that's any better. It's the same God who invites us as his sons to step out of what's comfortable, to leave the safety of the bleachers behind and say, yes, Lord, I want to take this journey with you. And when we step out, may all of us keep in step with him. May we not rush ahead of him. May we not try to charge ahead. May we not forget that the reason we're taking the journey is because he wants to spend that time with us. Yes, goals are important. Yes, outcomes are important. But it's nothing compared to the relationship and the friendship and the intimacy that our Heavenly Father, who's unbelievably passionate about you, he wants to cultivate that along the way. That's what he's after. He wants the relationship along the way. And he can be trusted. I'm so glad I said yes. It didn't end well, at least compared to how I expected but he was there. He was absolutely faithful. And what he wanted to happen in terms of the friendship and the intimacy along the way happened. Where I was after results and accomplishment, he was after friendship and intimacy. And aren't you glad our God is like that? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you are a God who is so passionate about relationship. Lord, we want to just take some time here, just take a few moments as we pray. God, I believe there are some specific things that you want to speak to your sons. And just take a moment right now, ask the Lord, say, is there any part of my life where I'm sitting in the stands and you're calling me out? You're calling me onto the field. You're calling me into the action. You're calling me out of the boat. You're calling me, you're saying come. Just take a little bit of time, ask him that. And Father, for the men who have stepped out and they feel like they're sinking, reveal yourself. Reveal yourself in a powerful way. Direct our attention back onto you. May we take our eyes off the wind and the waves and the scary circumstances and may we look at you square in the eyes, believing that you're with us on the water. You're with us in the storm. We can trust you. You are trustworthy. And Father, lastly, may we as men not be so focused on the outcome that we miss you along the way. God, give us an extra grace to take it one day at a time and to look for you in each and every day so that we can walk with you, so that we can journey with you, and that we don't miss what you have for us along the way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.